As you would have seen from previous episodes, my poetry concentrates mainly on my distrust, my dislike, intense dislike of everything religious. But why, you may ask? Well, let me try and explain it like this. I was recently asked if I believed in God. This was my answer. At the same moment the Japanese Imperial Empire attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, the world was also delivered of a beautiful baby girl. It was December 1941. My mother, Ethel Pauline Ellis, was born on the 8th of December to Alice and Thomas Ellis. She was the last born of seven children. Even though I had never met her, people told me my grandmother Alice was one of the most caring, loving, and peaceful people you would ever wish to meet. My grandfather, as many of that time, a time of poverty, insecurity, and fear, was a drunken bully. My mother was born on Cum Farm, a small holding rented by Thomas from the council. To make ends meet, and as he has no farming skills, he sublet the fields to local farmers. So now he was learning to look after animals, making money, and had none of the overheads involved. The house my mother was born in was later used as the stables. It's gone now, replaced by a very large Mediterranean-style villa and new build houses around it. History gone. The house was a three-story house built with no running water, electricity only in the bottom room. This was the living room, the kitchen, entrance room, all rolled into one. The first floor was for best, and the top floor was the two large bedrooms. Being the last born, my mother was ten years younger than her nearest sibling. Her sister Sonia, also at home, was her brother Armine. Just like the father, Armine was a drunk and a bully. They both had been banned from most of the pubs in the area. Surrounded by the district of Cockett, Cum Farm was at the bottom of a deep valley, surrounded by oak trees and steep muddy lanes to the main road. Nearest life was the asylum at Kevin Coyd Mental Hospital, just above the farm. The main track from the road down to the farm was very steep, very rough, and guarded by three heavy metal gates. They were called funeral gates, so-called because they were only ever opened up for funerals. Only a horse-drawn hearse could make it up and down that route. There were no phone boxes, no internet, no mobiles, and once down the farm you were completely cut off from the rest of the world. One of my mother's earliest memories was at a time when she had to, well, a time she tried to forget. A time when she had to, as a six or seven-year-old, run barefoot from bed in the middle of the night, in the pitch black, terrified, up the dark, steep hill to try and find policemen or any help, anyone on the main road to get help down to her mother. 
She would eventually return to the farmhouse the same way down that scary track and face whatever punishment given to her mother by either her father, brother or both for not making food in time or for saying something that they didn't agree with. The pain this small child had to deal with affected her the rest of her life. As an adult and visiting the farm with my mother many years later, she couldn't go near the house. Alice, my grandmother, was raised as a devout Welsh Baptist. My mother followed her in her choice of worship for her God. But where was God doing all the beatings? As a teenager, my mother Pauline got a job at the local Smith's Crisp factory. It was here she met my father, Keith Alleman. Of European descent, Keith didn't want to settle in Swansea, and indeed, the dripping tap of sexual adventures, which ran constantly during the early 1960s, he drank from readily and as often as possible. Soon after they married, and after my brother, three years later, I was born. It was 1968. My father was once again itching, and he needed that itch scratched quickly. He left us. He left us when I was three months old. After living away from Swansea for almost five years or so, and returning with her tail firmly between her legs, with two very young kids now in tow, the start of horrific time for my mother was boosted by the snobbery of her family. Returning to Swansea, she was shunned. Not only a divorcee, but with no money, no home and two kids, she was just going to be a burden to everyone. The only person who did eventually help her was her eldest sister, Ruby. She was lovely. All my aunts and uncles had good jobs, nice homes and plenty of money. My mother had the clothes she stood up in and two kids. Where is God now? After a year living with Ruby and her husband, Herbert, the bullying and threats from Herbert became too much for my mother to cope with. After month after month of begging the council, they gave us, eventually, a two-bedroom flat in the Mayhill area of Swansea, 23 Byron Crescent. As with everyone then, you only used the back door, which led onto a veranda, and which was housed our outside toilet, and there was steps going down to the back garden and eventually the road. We weren't allowed anywhere near the windows on a Tuesday. If you weren't in school, that was the day the rent man called, we had to hide. My mother had a couple of cash in hand jobs but nothing secure. She was smoking heavily and her health had started to get bad. When I was six, it was announced that Byron Crescent was to get a complete facelift. Had the choice of moving into a hostel and then back into the flat when the work was done or move somewhere else entirely. We moved. We moved to Creediol Road, only a mile away, but for the first time in my short life, we had an inside toilet. Until now, I didn't even know toilets had lights. What next? Toilet roll? Huh, no, that was too far-fetched. After a while, her family started to make an effort, and pretty soon, every Sunday meant the family trek to church. He would sit with Sonia, her sister, a church snob. 
she had to have the the best hat, best clothes, and had to have special prayer services in her house on a weekly basis. Church had now taken over my mother's life. Was there really a God? After my mother's death in 2005, two things shook me. One, a memory, and one, a complete surprise. The memory. 1976, and as an eight-year-old, all I wanted, as with my brother, was to see a new blockbuster movie called Star Wars. Nothing like this had been seen before. It was a must-see for everyone. Not known to me or my brother, my mother for months and months scraped and got together as much money as she possibly could in order to take us and get tickets for the film. She was determined. She wasn't going to let us down. We weren't going to be left out. She even saved enough to get a bus home afterwards. To get home, we would catch the bus outside the dentists in Orchard Street and the bus laden with passengers would struggle its way up Mount Pleasant Hill at a snail's pace until our stop at Alika's fish and chip shop. I haven't got a clue what it was called, Alika's, but it was. My mother had saved for months for cinema tickets, bought sweets and still had enough for a bus home, and now my brother and I gave her hell because she couldn't buy chips. The mile or so walk from the bus, we whinged, we moaned, we kept on and on. To this day, I can see her sitting on the coach, breaking her heart, because we were so horrible to her. But I didn't remember any of that until after she died. The surprise, going through the paperwork after her funeral, I found loads of appointment cards for various hospitals, I think in about 71 or 1972. It was a private hospital, Sonia, my aunt, for 37 years, was married to Ronald, my uncle. And when Sonia and Ronald divorced, my mother, who had again fallen foul of her family, became Ronald's partner. I would often visit him. It was the only link I had left to my mother after she died. I asked him about these hospital visits and he explained that my mother was quite ill at one point which led to the miscarriage of twins, heavily into the pregnancy. She had never said who the father was, but he was obviously a man of money because he had paid for my mother to go to a private hospital. Neither my brother Jan or I knew anything about this. How she must have felt, being abandoned by her husband, leading to divorce, being ostracised by most of her own family, being a single mother with no money, and now to lose two babies. Where was God now? As I grew up into my teens, and now flatly refusing to go to church with my brother now living in Germany, my mother threw herself totally into her belief in God. In many ways, she became obsessed. She was the archetypal Bible basher. Every conversation was about God about forgiveness, about Jesus and how he saved us all. She was going to three services on a Sunday, a prayer meeting on a Monday night and on a Wednesday night. Tuesday morning was Bible class on her sister Sonia's house 
and on a Friday afternoon there was another prayer meeting. As a single parent with poor health, she smoked very heavily and was now affecting her chest functions. She couldn't hold down a full-time job. The powers that be decided for to keep her benefits she could and she should find herself a a 12-hour-a-week job, and so she got her perfect job. She was now cleaning her church. When she wasn't worshipping, she was cleaning it. Very soon she was one of the fixtures and fittings of the church and soon became sucked into the whole fashion parade and one upmanship that grew in the church. As part of this she fell head over heels in love with her pastor. He was everything. He was married and I think really my mother was just awestruck by him. He had that sort of presence. It wasn't reciprocated in any way. One of the funniest events of this time was my mother's baptism. My brother was home from Germany, so we both lowered her. We both agreed to go (laughs) and watch the baptism. My brother was home, and I said we stood upstairs in the pews looking down with pride, because we knew it was something that she wanted to do. As her pastor lowered her backwards into the water, my mother panicked and having then took a large mouthful of water, coughed violently, sending her false teeth flying through the air until they settled, floating away from the two of them stood looking in terror at her plastic gnashes. Jan and I were sat directly above it and, well, we couldn't help ourselves. We just dissolved into a lather of laughter, tears, and embarrassment for my mother. Soon after, with Jan back in Germany in the army and with me putting more and more pressure on my mother to move house as I was embarrassed to tell my friends that I had now lived in Mayhill, she had a complete nervous breakdown. I didn't help. On her return home, her Bible bashing became worse and worse. She was EastEnders.cotton on speed. She was constantly quoting the Bible and praying and spending all of her spare time in church. What was her God doing to her? Then the worst. My mother, Pauline, had a very close friend, Lily. Lily had terminal cancer, and so my mother spent most of her spare time now caring for her at Lily's own home. Sometimes she would stay overnight, and even though they both knew the end was near, their friendship grew and grew. They became quite close. One afternoon, my mother entered Lily's to find her solicitor sitting there whilst Lily amended her will, instructing the solicitor to sell the house upon her death and make sure my mother was left a comfortable amount of money. Her words. My mother had never had money, and so even as the thought of losing her friend was painful, Lily's kindness was overwhelming. Two days before her death, Lily was visited by her solicitor once again, this time accompanied by the pastor from the church. Lily died, and soon the will was to be read. It transpired after the second visit that Lily had left everything in the will, including the house, to the pastor. My mother received nothing. It was obvious in her dying state he had convinced her to change her will. It also then emerged he was having several affairs 
with various female parishioners. And so very quickly, he was hounded out of the church, completely breaking my mother's heart. She had another breakdown. She was devastated. Where was God now? Several years and several breakdowns later, her mother was smoking heavily and depended on several inhalers just to survive during the day. After visiting my mother on December the 26, 2004 and watching on television the terrible events of the tsunami which killed thousands, she told me that she'd been quite unwell, had some tests and the results would be going to given to her in between Christmas and the New Year. It was in fact New Year's Eve. I took her to the hospital. It was confirmed that she had bronchial carcinoma, lung cancer. It was very small, pea size, but it was sitting against the heart valve in her left lung. The doctor said it was unlikely to kill her, but it would certainly make her breathing worse. She wasn't fit enough for her any sort of invasive treatment, but they would try and help her with drugs. She just gave up. Come on, God, where are you? Can you see her? As the weeks passed, as long as she had her fags, her coffee and the odd cheese sandwich, she was happy. Her weight dropped dramatically. Her strength disappeared and she grew paler by the day. From being an active 63-year-old, she became a little old lady. Come on, God. Come on, do something. Two days before my daughter Olivia's fourth birthday, Ronald phoned me to say that my mother was unwell and I should come down to Swansea as he was really, really worried. When I got there, I called an ambulance and she was rushed to Singleton Hospital and I have to say, for the record, the staff there were amazing. They probed, poked and prodded and eventually said her oxygen levels were dangerously low. They put her on a mask and said, give her four, perhaps five days, and she'll be home. She'll be fine. That was a Saturday afternoon. Sunday, she seemed a little better. On the Monday morning, I was told that pneumonia had now set into her right lung. By the Monday afternoon, she was in a coma. They kept her comfortable with drugs and oxygen. And through the next week, palliative care was started. On the Friday, I was told that nothing more could be done. They stopped all treatment. By now, different members of her church were coming into the hospital room, sitting around her, either praying or reading from the Bible. I hated it. It was the end of the football season. It was football constantly on TV. And so every time one of her church buddies came in, I made sure the football was on full blast. During the evening of Saturday the 30th of April, for the first time in weeks, she opened her beautiful crystal blue eyes and a single tear flowed. I broke down and cried for hours. She was looking for her God. I was shattered and alone. Next day, on my last legs, I knew I had to go home. I had to shower, I had to eat, I had to sleep. Not wanting to disturb anyone, I slept on the sofa downstairs. 
At half past midnight, the hospital phoned and asked me to attend. Nothing more was said. The 48-mile drive to Swansea was terrible. I was alone, scared and tired. I entered her room. I was terrified. But when I saw her, she looked beautiful, peaceful, pain-free. She was dead. The nurse asked me to remove her jewellery and her watch and explain what happened next. The nurse was quite obviously very heavily pregnant. I felt so guilty that she should be doing this. I hugged my mother, I kissed her, I told her that I would always love her. I told her Olivia would always know of her, her beautiful nanny red house, as she called her. Where was her God now? So, back then to the original question, do I believe in God? A person my mother gives her life to, but he's nowhere to be seen. There's so much death in this world, and it's all down to him, it, her, whoever. How could such a selfish, uncaring, and arrogant entity actually exist? So do I believe in God? No. I don't believe in God. I believe in us, in mankind. <laughs>